we're all about creating flying cars. So I wanted people to look at it and instinctively understand that it's not a little plane. Um, it's not a, a strange looking helicopter. It's a, it's a flying car. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Partners in Time. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest. It's Matt Pearson, technology innovator and entrepreneur and space entrepreneur, actually, who's the founder of Airspeeder. And Airspeeder is really at the start of a technological revolution. Airspeeder has been inspired by traditional car racing and close quarter action on the racetrack and really is trying to figure out how to transfer that to, into the modern age of technology and basically generate what is a flying car. But the difference to many of the things we've seen before is, of course, that these are going to be manned flying cars that hopefully will deliver a brand new racing series and also be a major, major milestone in the innovation towards um, safe flying car operation in the world. And that's obviously wildly exciting. RWC is very, very excited to be partners with Airspeeder. Matt, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm very well. And thanks for the, the lovely intro. So whereabouts in the world are you at the moment? I'm in South Australia, actually, um, kind of on the, on the cusp of uh, the Australian desert out here. So, wow. uh, yeah. so you do still need a bit of space for the airspeed, I suppose, when, you, when you're out in the More desert. More space, the better. Yeah. <laughs> in <laughs> the early uh, stages, it's a good place at least. To be. We, that's right. No, it's a good, good place to be. We have a lot of, um, lot of sunny days, a lot of open desert. Yeah, absolutely. So t tell our audience a little bit about yourself, about your story and, and what got you into Airspeeder and where you're at right now. Yeah, well, my story starts, um, you know, as a, as a kid, I kind of had a lot of these crazy dreams to go and um, put things in space. And, and uh, you know, all my notebooks as a kid were full of drawings of race cars and, and flying cars and, and spaceships. Um, as, as I think a lot of little, little, little boys, um, yes, I have are. a photo of those flying cars. We should exchange one day. I'll show you mine. You show me yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It'd be interesting to see how, how many of these, these things we've, we've ticked off so far. So it's, uh, yeah. And, and I look, I, I built a, a software company, um, first and, uh, and had a lot of fun and, and, um, grew it, uh, to, to a point where, I'd kind of had all the fun that I wanted to have there and started to, to have enough time and money to think about um, what I really wanted to do with the rest of my life and what, what I, I thought would have the biggest impact. And uh, so I, I kind of went, went into this kind of regression state, looked back at like, well, what, what were my, my craziest dreams? And said, okay, well, let's, let's try and put something in space and, and try to build a flying car and see where that leads. And where has it led so far? <laughs> well, so far we've... Uh, We've put five things in space, so just launched my, my fifth satellite, um, uh, built a, a company around that, providing telecommunication services with, uh, with nano satellites, so cramming a whole lot of power into a, a very small package and then um, putting that into low Earth orbit. Um, and we've just been having a, a huge amount of success with that. And, uh, and on the flying car side, we, we started building, um, you know, small prototypes and proofs of concept and, and they grew bigger and bigger and bigger uh, until it really just got out of hand. You know, we, <laughs> we built something that's, uh, that's, that's uh, getting absolutely enormous really from, from the standpoint of looking at, at a multi-copter you go, wow, that's, 
it's very big. And when, when you, when you're standing on a salt flat with, with the thing flying past you, it's, um, it's, uh, you, you, you really get a sense of, wow, that's mm. that, the motor, the wash of, of the, the sound from the props and the, as the air's kind of, um, chopped away in front of you. It's, um, it's amazing. <laughs> So just for the benefit of our listeners, can, can you describe a little bit these, these airspeeder? They're essentially quadcopters, right? But describe a little bit what they look like. Yeah, we, I wanted, I was very clear that I wanted to do something. We're, we're all about creating flying cars. So I wanted people to look at it and instinctively understand that, that this is a flying car. It's not a little plane. Um, it's not a, a strange looking helicopter. It's a, it's a flying car. And uh, so we we merged the, the DNA of, uh, of like a, a Jaguar E-Type and a uh, and a, a multi-copter um, frame, obviously, and then added a little bit of Spitfire styling to it. Um, mm. And we've come up with something that I think is um, yeah, that that kind of iconic. It looks like a, a 1960s or 1950s racer, um, a, a kind of cigar-shaped racer, but um, yeah, with with a little bit of that golden age of, of aviation thrown in. Yeah. And I think that's something I remember when I first uh, checked out Airspeeder and had a look at your videos and photographs. So something that immediately struck me, I think it's, this really takes me back to what technological innovation should be all about. Because while it's it's clearly defining the future of mobility, it also has this dream element that's been with us for so many years, which is the flying car. And then on top of that, they look cool. And I think this is something that Today, when we look at uh, transport innovation, that I'm, as a designer, I'm missing quite a bit. And I, I still haven't got my head around why we can't, and then this is a very personal view, but sometimes it, it, it feels to me that when we go into the next stage of transport evolution, technological evolution, electrification in cars, th there seems to be this understanding that they don't have to be designed very well anymore. You know, not, not, mm. there are some exceptions, but by and large, I, I almost feel like in, in the time uh, back at the, the height of modernism, when we're designing uh, jets and aviation and the next generation of planes, you know, this was all desirable. This stuff just looked cool. And, and mm. nowadays it's kind of almost like, right, we'll do an electric car, just put some blue LEDs on and a, and a weird bonnet and everything sort of flashing at you. And airspeeder seems fundamentally different because A, it's, yes, it's technical revolution in terms of um, the, the flight technology, the electrical powertrain, and so on. But at the same time, it's also both in terms of design evolution, it's exciting in terms of technology as a flying car rather than a drone helicopter. It, it's exciting and it, it speaks to many of those dreams where technological evolution feels like progress. And I think that's so different about Airspeeder. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's, um, you know, we're definitely speaking the same language. Uh, I, I think the, the big thing that the people tend to forget is, um, you know, people fell in love with the car, you know, the dawn of the, the automobile and pl like planes and cars, they, uh, you know, they became these beautiful coveted design pieces as much as they, they were, um, you know, brilliant innovations and, and, um, sparking off this mobility revolution a hundred years ago, over a hundred years ago. And now I feel like we, we've almost got this kind of Silicon Valley approach where, Hey, as long as it ticks all the boxes and it's, and it's electric, um, it must be great and you must mm. love it. Um, and I, I don't think that's, that's okay. You, you know, there, there still has to be this care around, um, how do you, how do you build acceptance? You know, it's a, it's quite a big step for society to, to go, all right, all that, those, uh, sci-fi films we, we've grown up with, with flying cars in the air. Now we're going to actually do that. 
that's quite a lot to, that's a big change. It's going to completely um, reshape the, the way we live and, and the, the cities we live in. Um, and you know, people have to be on board with that to make it happen. So the acceptance piece, I think, comes from really caring about creating something beautiful, functional, um, and super practical, but, um, but beautiful, something that you, you can fall in love with. Yeah, I know. I absolutely right. And I think that's why it's so refreshing as well in the space of aviation uh, and, 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 and space travel, really, to see that for the first time for, for many years, uh, when they're discussing, you know, the SpaceX uh, crew capsule or even the spacesuits, people start talking about the fact that it needs to be functional, comfortable, needs to work, but it also is designed consciously, you know, and, and where things end up inside the, the capsule and the cockpit. It's not just sort of a, a function of, um, you know, where was the easiest uh, place to, to put the screw in, but it's actually consciously designed. And I think that that is, is very refreshing. And what you're saying with the, the world of almost sort of this um, stylized uh, sci-fi and movie environment uh, coming to reality, that is something that has been woefully missing from many engineered projects. And I think for me, the, 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 the worst uh, sort of reality check was, was, I don't know if you remember the, the film uh, Hunt for Red October, Sean Connery, uh, oh, yeah. which basically fin f featured these massive um, Soviet-era typhoon submarines. And of course, in the movie, um, that sort of bridge area and the periscope area of the Red October was like super sleek design. You know, everything was LED backlit. I mean, probably not LED in those days, but backlit to dramatic effect. Everything looked <laughs> very sort of mission-ready. Uh, and then uh, w once the Iron Curtain fell, you had the first photo documentaries popping up of the actual typhoon submarines bridge area. So people went in and took pictures of all these these boats and, and posted them and it just looked like um, a sorry old nuclear power station control room you know with a bit of <laughs> fake wood veneer and it's so disappointing well it turns out it's quite difficult really it's um yeah i, th I think i think it's uh in a lot of ways it's a very simple machine um you know electric the electric powertrain and the um uh you know we, we all, we're all familiar with drones and you know the, the propeller the esc the uh, the, the motors, the, the battery, all of that is very simple. We only have eight moving parts um, in the in the whole vehicle. Four of those are redundant. You know, if a motor cuts out, then then the others compensate. Um, and then you have an enormous amount of control um, and and stability um, because of the the robotic system. So a lot of it is software based, um, and so it's it's a lot of the stuff that's going on under the hood that's. Um, uh, that's making it all possible, but it's so simple. Um, but then it depends what you want to optimize it for. Um, and you know, if you're optimizing for flight efficiency and, um, trying to, to maximize flight time, um, for things like airport commuting, you're going to make a whole mm. lot of uh, decisions about how you need to, to build it and prove it and certify it. Um, and, uh, you know, you're going to be maximizing for things like, uh, well, flight time, but also minimizing engine noise and, and, and things like that, because you're, you're going to be operating over, over cities, um, which is, which is mm. great. Um, but it, it takes a long time and, you know, it can take decades to, to build, design, build and certify a new aircraft. Um, and what typically happens with modern aviation is, is then the design is locked in and you're going to make that, um, aircraft for, decades and you're really not going to change very much um, once it's working it's it's done that and that's it and i think 
you know, we've seen that work well with 747s and things like that, but they still they haven't fundamentally changed since, since the 60s. Mm. Um, and uh, the, the opportunity, though, that we have is several things are changing very fast on, um, in electric mobility uh, with autonomous systems, um, sensor suites and the, the kind of machine vision that goes on behind that, the control systems. Um, batteries are getting uh, are improving at an exponential rate. So I think the thing is the uh, and, and our focus is to design something that um, uh, can change and can can iterate um, much more quickly, uh, so that we can keep grabbing the most modern um, techniques and the most modern technology every year while while we're in this phase where where there's so much change in it and it's it's happening very very quickly so that's that's the challenge so it's very difficult to build an air taxi um, and it's very difficult to build a, a, a flying car in general easy to build something um, a, a proof of concept a, a prototype and and get something flying um, and uh, you know strap a, a seat to it you could do that much harder to build something that's um, uh, that's going to be certified and then Different. Fly it into build. the middle of Manhattan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then diff different if you want to do what we're doing, where where you really want to build the Formula One of of flying cars, where every year you're going to build a new vehicle. Um, and so it's mm. it's not just we're not just trying to build the the vehicle. We're trying to build a whole mechanism to um, to get that iteration cycle really really tight and um, be able to design and learn um, and build and test very in super tight iteration cycles. Mm. What sort of altitudes and speeds and sort of battery ranges are, are, are we talking about just to get a rough idea? Yeah. So um, we're, we're very low altitude flight. So um, typically a lot, a lot of our, our flying is, is kind of six to 10 meters off the ground. Mm. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's dramatic. It's following a race course. Um, we're, we're doing this uh, as a sport. So, You know, people want to watch it and be able to see what's going on. You don't want something that's kilometers up in the air. Um, so very, very low altitude, which presents other challenges. Um, speeds where we're working towards uh, our, our first real, real um, big target is about 200, 250 Ks an hour, um, which is quite, quite fast, six meters off the ground. <laughs> so um, that's going to be, yeah. be quite fun. Um, and then battery, battery duration, we're, we're looking at... Um, You know, short, short duration, we're not trying to optimize for efficiency. We're trying to optimize for agility and mm. um, uh, agility and power performance, exactly. So uh, really uh, 10, 15 minutes uh, flight time mm. that we have a, a pit stop, swap out the batteries and fly again. I'm sure, Matt, you've heard this before, but I think that the, the type of thing it sort of reminds me of really is, is Star Wars pod racing. <laughs> and obviously the, the problem with that was always that they kept crashing into each other quite a bit. Mm. How are you dealing with a safety aspect to that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's one of those things, racing, racing drivers, racing pilots will always um, want to, to push the boundaries, right? And uh, they'll always want to give each other a little bit of a nudge. Um, So the, the yeah, as we've the, just seen a, a number of times in recent Grand Prix races in Formula <laughs> One, nudged each other quite a bit. <laughs> exactly, yeah, maybe maybe more of a shove than a nudge, really. So um, mm. uh, yeah, the 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 thing that um, we actually want to enable enable that you know you want close quarter racing action, you want to allow vehicles to get as close as possible to each other. 
Um, and that has, that's going to have a practical application when our skies and our kind of skyways become more crowded in the future where you, you want to pack more vehicles into a given airspace. But in racing, yeah, we want, we want vehicles to be able to get very close to each other without touching. So we're building a, a, um, a collision avoidance uh, system that is also more of a collision simulation system. So it allows almost a virtual force field where one, one vehicle can come up close and, and bump the other. The other pilot will feel the, the, the bump uh, to some degree, but um, they're not actually touching each other. And that's the first layer of, of safety protection. And then you have everything else that we've seen in um, uh, motorsport safety, uh, you know, uh, monocoques and um, mm. ballistic parachutes and, and those sorts of things for if you think about land speed record vehicles and those those parachutes taking yeah. the um, uh, bring the vehicle to a stop, that's the sort of thing we also need. Yeah, and these parachutes are sewn in Bristol, I think, isn't it? The balloon company that makes all of those parachutes uh, down in the West Country. Yeah, it's um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, bit of useless nerdy information there. Yeah, <laughs> we're not working with them yet. Yeah, we're not working with them yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, this is the, really the exciting piece. I mean, this collision avoidance, a uh, kind of uh, mobile phone vibration, give you a bump and nudge you mm -hmm. away kind of technology. I mean, that is genuinely exciting. I mean, I was literally blown away when I heard that the first time because you suddenly imagine how you go from something where you probably have to keep like huge amount of distances between uh, aircraft as you do in, in traditional sort of sky management to a mm. situation where you're much closer to a flying car because you can probably uh, be quite close quarters and you'd never actually crash into each other. And that, that's obviously a huge game changer for the idea of flying cars. That's exactly right. And that's, that's why, I mean, this is the great benefit of um, your multi-copter technology is the control. So you can have a, a, a robotic system that's um, keeping everybody safe and has that, that level of, of augmentation, that level of control um, to, and the kind of fine, fine control uh, that just isn't possible if you have a wing or you know, you're building a traditional aircraft. Um, mm. Yeah. Of course, the, the, the inherent issue with helicopters is that they don't have an awful lot of lift, so they don't really want to fly naturally. <laughs> What is it like with a multicopter? I mean, does that allow you theoretically like an engine off landing purely on the sort of the lift of the blades? Or is that if, if all fail, it'll literally sort of come down, luckily only from six meters? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, um, yes, I mean, we're, we're trying to, uh, obviously, we're mitigating, we're using what we know from helicopters and helicopter design. Um, for things like hard landings and, and that, um, you know, crashing in that on that vertical axis, you you uh, need to take the, um, the the brunt out of that that sort of crash. Um, so yes, there's some some lift from winglets and um, and some some control surfaces that we're building in, um, but really you you want to be able to rely on the redundancy of of, of the mm. motors. Um, you want to make sure that you've got your warning systems and in, in place so that when you are depleting the battery, uh, you can come down and land safely. And almost, you know, in future, you, you want to have um, uh, kind of on-the-fly uh, course planning for, all right, you're, you're really depleting the battery. You have two options of where to land. Um, you should pick one of them now or I'm going to pick it for you. <laughs> like that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. So yeah, yeah. So there's some, some, some control um, and, and there are other things that we can kind of do there. I think what you'll see more and more in the, the industry as a whole is low altitude pa parachutes um, becoming very important um, because mm. that, that's the thing. Once the battery is dead, you don't have too much, um, you know, too many other options. <laughs>
Yeah, no. <laughs> and, well, I, guess, I guess air to air charging is still some way off before the <laughs> yeah, that, that friendly be charging point <laughs> copter comes along and just gives you a quick injection. <laughs> a little, little boost. Who knows? I mean, 10 years, things, things can change a lot in 10 years, but uh, yeah, not yet. Absolutely. <laughs> I was thinking the other day, I actually had a, a very practical application for your technology where I think today we really have an issue because when you think about the whole idea of emergency first responders and especially the the, the advanced um, doctors that often you know go ahead of um, ambulances for really sort of major trauma events. Um, mm. You know, in many countries of the world, you have an air ambulance service, but by and large, they, they neither fly at night nor do they fly in, in, in bad weather conditions. And then at the end mm. of the day, you're, you're stuck on the road and you're trying to, to get a doctor to a critically ill patient or injured patient very, very quickly. And I, in my in my mind, I'm thinking your your technology would be absolutely ideal for that because if you have a single uh, doctor with a light bit of kit that just needs to get to a patient extremely quickly, isn't that sort of a natural sort of airspeed uh, application? I mean, it would be ace. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I mean, you, you see a lot of. Uh, it's, I mean, in general, that's that's a great application for for the technology. Um, being able to get into tight spots, a lot of control, um, and uh, and especially good for for short distances like that. Um, uh, hopping over traffic exactly exactly so yes absolutely um and uh and then, then in a, a variety of of um i guess a variety of settings you know that there's there are a whole lot of applications for um not just in cities but uh but in remote areas as well and um, quite a few people working on you know flying doctor applications um in places like australia uh, you see that as as the mm. kind of the next thing electrifying that very cool. Yeah, which I guess is already a sort of standard practice in, in remote parts of Australia. You have a lot of sort of yeah, flying no, no services. That, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take some time. <laughs> so, so when do you think, well, what's the timeline like? What's the roadmap like? When do you think we're going to see some sort of first uh, action and sort of manned racing? You know, what are we looking at? Yeah, well, the first step is um, as part of our engineering program and the, the road to, to manned flight is to show how these vehicles operate and gather all the data for the manned program. Um, so you know, we'll, we'll be doing um, remote showcases uh, throughout this year and, and that will continue. We'll always test our technology remotely piloted um, uh, and until we're, we're sure that, hey, that everything is safe, everything is, um, is ready for, for a pilot to take command from the cockpit. And, um, and so that is a, a program of, uh, leading to, to manned flight. The short answer is, We'll do it when it's safe. Um, the, the the roadmap is really uh, towards the end of this year and uh, and early next year, getting into um, manned flight demonstrations. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, when it's when it's safe. Um, and there's a but there's a lot of exciting learning that we we need to to be doing throughout this year um, and next uh, around. You know how how do these um, how how do vehicles like this. Um, really respond in a racing environment at close quarters with the collision avoidance system. Um, you know, we've got to spend a lot of time in the simulators, uh, a lot of time on the, the salt flat testing actual vehicles remotely, and um, yeah, and building that flight heritage that, mm. that we all need and that confidence we all need before um, a very brave pilot gets behind the, the, the sticks. Yeah. And I, I guess this is also a major difference in, in the way that times have changed, because when you think about the pioneering era of motor racing and, and motorsport, I mean, uh, not, not that, uh, you know, I think it's all right, but you know, you had things blowing up all over the place, you know, and basically these 
Uh, pilots were sitting uh, without seat belts on on fuel tanks at unreasonable speeds on bad tires <laughs> you know <so laughs> in war era concrete roads and uh, you know accidents were in that development phase you know the, the sport was not safe in any sense you know neither for the for the pilots nor for the audience and today you've seen that with the self-driving cars i think the expectation in terms of um off the line kind of safety is is has changed completely and that mm. that must be a much more you know technically of course we don't want people to get hurt but technically it's a much much bigger challenge because you, you don't have this uh, huge trial and error kind of <laughs> possibility no. uh, nowadays <laughs> things have to work right well it's true and i mean the other thing is we we have more tools available now so you know we don't have to it's not that your only option is uh is to strap someone to it and and off they go and, and uh, that's how you're going to test weirdly that's how the regulations are still really written you know the they the the regulations are still catching up with um the ability to to do anything remote um so our, our risk i think our risk tolerance is uh has reduced, but we have more tools available to do that testing and get more data um, even before uh, someone someone gets behind the, the controls, um, mm. and that's good. So I think I think that's good. We should use those tools. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, at IWC, obviously, we're very glad that as a fully electrified technology company, you've then chosen a mechanically driven backup timing instrument. So if all else fails, <laughs> at least you know what time it is. Um, you know, we're obviously very excited to be working with you. But let, let's talk a little bit, you know, Matt Pearson and, and, and watches. What's your, what's your story with mechanical watches? And do you have a first watch memory? And, and you know, where did that lead to? Uh, you know, I've always favoured mechanical watches, and um, it's—I uh, I don't know—I—I—I I, I just don't need more email in my life. Like, I, I really don't. So, yeah, I, don't, I don't. Not, not I, more things beeping at you. Definitely. Yeah, I just just don't don't want that. It's like you know, it's the, the one. It's it's a, it's a safe space to just be able to look at my wrist and see only the time. It's wonderful. So yeah, I've, I've always uh, I've never had a smartwatch, and I've always favoured a mechanical watch. Um, I don't know. I, th I think uh, the, the kind of that, that story just. Um, I remember my my grandfather was a kind of very um, classic gentleman, smoked a pipe, uh, you know, and uh, I, I just I always kind of saw his his style um, as kind of mm. quintessentially ge gentlemanly, and and um, uh, it was something I always wanted to, to emulate in my life. Uh, so I think I think it was it was watching. Um, you know, uh, there, I, I don't know if there was this, um, you know, we're not a family of mad watch collectors or anything, or, or, you know, building up massive, massive collections, but this focus on essentials and, and, um, and simplicity and, and beauty has always been kind of there mm. in, in my family. Um, so I was, I guess that was drummed into me. Yeah. I mean, what strikes me is that mechanical watches in the aviation community, they, they hold quite a special place. And that's something I only really came to appreciate fully when we started to work both with Matt Jones and the Silver Spitfire team, but also with uh, with the US Navy and, and, and uh, our first sort of trips up to Top Gun. Because you get, as a watch manufacturer, you, can, you come at the, the whole idea of the pilot's watch, especially when you're in the professional environment, you think, okay, this is all going to be about functionality, precision, you know, navigation backup devices. But you learn quite quickly that there, there are really... Um, two main pillars. Yes, you know, you have this idea of uh, the, the watch and the chronograph being the ultimate um, timing and navigation backup device. And, and mm. I've, I've spoken to, to Matt uh, Jones about um, many situations he's had in the Spitfire where for one reason or another, 
uh, certain bits of electronics and uh, and GPS has uh, failed, and he relied on on his, the timing component of his chronograph to actually get to his rendezvous point and so on. Um, but also, what we found is that this idea of the the heritage and the the romance that is in a mechanical pilot's watch is is actually very very relevant to people in the aviation space. Mm. Why do you think that is, and how does that relate to you? Yeah, I, I mean. Um Personally, it's uh, there. There is this connection, you know. I, I look at, at my big pilot, and there's this. Um, you you just have this this connection back to um, what what was essential about flight, and what what the early days of mm. pioneering in flight um, was. I mean, it's um, my my favorite author is uh, Antoine de Saint Exupéry, and uh, you know, I, I have posters of his uh, uh, of lines from Wind, Sand, and Stars all over. Um, yeah. You know, all, all my businesses reinforcing focus on on um, simplicity, but there's I think behind that there's, there's the that, that feeling of I don't know um, uh, being able to rely on 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 one thing uh, when you when you feel like you're lost in the desert <laughs> on a sand dune kind of thing. There's that uh, that, that kind of um, drawing everything back to, to simplicity. And uh, and the, the romance of early flight and the the I guess what what those pioneers went through um, is uh, uh, you know and, and we're we're expected to to go through crossing the opening channels through the Andes and crossing the Sahara and all that kind of stuff. Those are the things I, I think about when I think about um, you know, mechanical pilots' watches. Um, I don't know. It's uh, uh, I, I think that's that's what what pioneering in aviation feels like. Um, and and the watch is just the the essential piece of that. Mm. So it's 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 sort of really where the, the the history and the storytelling of aviation really come together with sort of functional engineering. I think that's that's what we always feel, and it, it, I find mm. it's really interesting when you do professional pilots' watches and you really have uh, certain communities that are asking for sort of you know tactical blacked out, you know non-reflective, very legible, mm. etc. And then you have others who go like, yeah, that's great, but you know let's have a little <laughs> bit of shine to it. You know, do you have a dark blue polished leather? Maybe Santoni, that's nice. You know, <laughs> and you think, oh right, okay. And and there is this huge element of pride, I think, of uh, you know the, the whole history, um, all the achievements that uh, all of these squadrons over time, you know, call their own. There, there is this this huge element, and I think that's also for us as a, as a, as a watch brand, what makes it uh, so fascinating to work with. But of course, none of that is anything like Airspeed. So we are super excited about what the future is going to hold there, what the, the race series is going to bring. And I often think about the, the technological change that... Um, you know, Formula One is, is undergoing at the moment. And yes, there's Formula E today, but as a sort of, you know, crown series of, of uh, motor racing, uh, Formula One really holds that place. And I'm wondering sometimes whether Airspeeder and that technology you're working on actually has the potential to become the next level of Formula One. I mean, just imagine if we suddenly had <laughs> flying cars on a Formula One track. That'd be wildly exciting, huh? Well, that that's it. I mean, um, it's a model that's that's worked before, and uh, and I mean, like uh, you know, it it, it worked a hundred years ago. It's worked all through this last century to, um, you know, as as a model for. I see racing as a model for development, but I also see um, we want to create the the pinnacle of of our industry, and if this is going to be one of the most influential mobility industries in the world, then uh, positioning the sport as as that kind of pinnacle of engineering, um, uh, performance, design, um, but also 
style and, and lifestyle. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, like I said, it's important for the world to fall in love with this new mobility revolution. So this has to be something mm. that's exciting and beautiful. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's why we're trying to, we are trying to be, become the, the Formula One of, of the sky. And who knows, maybe, I think there'll always be a place for, for vehicles on the ground, of course, but um, what is the pinnacle of, of uh, you know, mobility engineering um, and competition? Uh, I think we have a chance to do that. Yeah. I think pe- a lot of people recognize that straight off. You just go, yeah, this has a chance to be that. Yeah. No, no it's, it's a very important point. As you say, it's all about the buy-in and people's ultimate fascination that this becomes uh, something aspirational because this will mm. ultimately drive the technology forward because if the customer demand is there, nothing is a better innovator than that <laughs> because ultimately yeah. that will just drive the, in the entire industry, the whole R&D base. And then, you know, when it comes to, to pilots, of course, you know that Lewis Hamilton's uh, original dream was to become a fighter pilot, you know, his first watch mm-hmm. with a big pilot Top Gun, you know, and, and I think you have a candidate there. <laughs> you probably wouldn't say no. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, I, I see that as, um, I, that's it. That, that comes up over and over and over again with racing drivers. Um, the, yeah. And I mean, you see it, you see it all the time. Um, but they're also pilots and uh you would have had every thrill. Yeah, it you seems possibly a logical evolution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, finally, um, you know, we've seen that in Formula One and motorsport more widely, that this has always been the innovation and technology driver for much more mass accessible products all the way through. You know, many of the key technologies have been developed in motorsport and then cascaded down sort of into everyday vehicles. Um, how, how do you see the potential for Airspeeder there? What can it bring really to um, sort of the, the wider public over time. That's it. I mean, um, I always say motorsport gave us seat belts and disc brakes and rear vision mirrors. And um, apart from all the performance innovation, um, yeah, the, uh, the other thing I always say is that, that uh, two years after the seaplane was invented um, in 1911, or well, the first, first practical seaplane was sold to the US Navy in 1911, and 1913, they were racing them at, at Monaco um, you know, as part of the, the beginning of the Schneider Trophy and uh, with yeah. a top speed of about 40 miles an hour. Um, over 18 years, that went to 400 miles an hour and, and led to the led directly <laughs> to the birth of the Spitfire. Um, that was the Spitfire, yeah, essentially, after 18 years. So, um, you know, we're going to see, we want to see that kind of 10x leap in performance um, in the same space, when probably a lot of air taxi companies are still certifying their, their first or second iteration, I want to go through multiple generations, 10 generations of, of vehicle, um, and you know, strip it down again and again and again to the essentials. Um, and so, yes, we'll get safety equipment out of this and, and safety innovation, performance innovation. Um, and I think we're, we're, the point is... We're building a, an accelerator for the whole industry and a place for the whole industry to play. Um, and uh, that, that in itself, that's the invention, really. The, um, that will lead to things that we can't even imagine yet. Um, so there's, there's acceptance coming, there's safety coming, um, and, uh, and performance innovation, of course. Mm. And that's why I think it's also absolutely key that um, you get humans in, involved in this technology because I think as as efficient as many things are being done by, by drone, there's ultimately, mm. there's also a bit of unease that comes with that because it, it always, and this is sort of very sort of philosophical, but I do think that the entire 
as safe as it may be for everything to be pilotless and, and completely drone, there's also this this underlying fear that there is an ultimate redundancy for, for human beings and this whole idea of sort of AR taking over. And I think sub subconsciously we we never it's very hard to feel that um, excited about things which ultimately make humans <laughs> superfluous in the whole thing. So, you know, the fact that you you have this element of human control and, and this excitement of actually putting a human being into it, I think makes it much more relatable and hopefully also gets people a lot more excited about it. Exactly. Right, Matt. Finally, I want to quiz you a little bit about your your other venture, the the micro satellite company, if I understood that correctly. And can you explain a little bit what is the 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 advantage or otherwise of a very small satellite, and how what do they do, and how do you actually get them into space? Yeah, it's a it's a, it, it is a really interesting industry. I mean, the whole um, we see every day now amazing things happening in the in the space industry, and. Um, uh, there are all these new rocket companies basically are, are creating new opportunities to, to put more things in space. Um, and I think the, the big change we're, we're also seeing at the same time is the miniaturization of electronics. So rockets are, are getting bigger and more powerful and more prolific, and then uh, satellites are coming down in, in size. And so about um, seven, eight years ago, there was a company that started putting uh, cameras from a, an Android phone onto a um, uh, onto a small satellite and, and launching that to, to create a commercial imaging network using very small satellites. Um, and when I saw that, um, me and my business partner uh, got started looking at, well, could we do the same thing for communications and you know, use a very very small platform uh, with that would be much lower cost to to send to orbit, um, kind of self self-cleaning um, uh, constellation as well because the satellites will burn up um, after their, their useful life. And, mm. um, you know, and, and obviously, you know, you don't have the same power as a massive satellite, but you can still do some really interesting things. Um, so, yeah, we, we started building small satellites to, um, to connect uh, low-power devices, uh, typically in um, uh, for critical infrastructure, things like pipelines and power lines and um, all sorts of things in, in really remote regions, um, we realized we could connect them at, at low cost, um, uh, but also provide the, a, a specific type of connectivity tailored to, um, to things, really, like where soon everything will be instrumented. Basically, um, in, in your house, you think about um, your, your Amazon Echo and a smart fridge and a smart um, oven and things like that, but um, there are a lot, a lot of other kind of critical things that, that go on outside of cities that are important for sustaining our our, our lives, and uh, we're connecting those things using using small satellites. Right, okay, so this is the Internet of Things for your pipeline monitoring program. Is that sort of simplified yeah. what what it is? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And with more and more satellites, I mean, I, I assume you still put them on board of some commercial space rocket, but there's going to be many more in the cargo hold compared to the bigger satellites. Is that it? That's right. So it's kind of a ride share for, for small satellites that's available now. So we launched, um, we just launched a satellite on uh, uh, a rocket lab, Electron rocket from New Zealand. Um, and in about 45 days, we'll launch another one from Cape Canaveral on a SpaceX rocket. And, uh, and the next one's being built. So we're trying to get up this, this launch cadence um, and you know, go through accelerated 
testing um, and then get to, to space um, as fast as possible and learn pretty much what, what SpaceX is doing for, for rockets and big satellites. We're doing the same thing for small satellites. See, here's, here's a question I wanted to ask you because I, I literally don't know how that works. But I always think I once saw in an exhibition like an, a model of planet Earth with all of the little satellites and things that are orbiting it at different altitudes. And it seems like almost impossible to launch a rocket at some point without hitting something in some orbit somewhere along the way. <laughs> how does this practically work, you know, as a non-space people like me? How do you make sure that when you launch from New Zealand, you're not going to hit five, you know, competing telecommunication satellites on the way up? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's very, very tightly regulated. And um, I mean, the big thing in satellites, weirdly, the, the kind of crossover point is collision avoidance. <laughs> so <laughs> collision it's avoidance a recurring when, when, theme you're when you're traveling at 27,000 kilometers an hour is, uh, you know, um, really imperative. And we, we get notifications from um, Space Command um, uh, saying, hey, you know, we've, uh, we've, there's, there's a potential upcoming collision. Um, how are we going to mitigate the risk? Uh, do the satellites move out of the way? Um, typically, a, a, if there's a bigger satellite, it'll have the, the capability to, to move out of danger. Um, but the uh, same thing happens for the space station. Uh, they're they're you know, constantly monitoring everything with radar. And this is one of the, the big challenges with small satellites is how small is too small before you can't pick it up on radar? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so you, know, you, you kind of still want to be uh, of a size that people can pick you up. And, uh, and you know where everything is. Um, and those radar systems are becoming incredibly sophisticated. So everything's tracked. That's why you, you would have seen that. It's amazing when you see how much stuff is up there. It's like you, you, you can't even fathom how many bits. <laughs> you know, there's, there's junk, there's, there are satellites, there are old, old satellites. It's kind of good that we're moving to this low Earth, Earth orbit model because instead yeah. of there's, – there's, there's an orbital graveyard out there um, – for old geostationary satellites, um, they're already 37,000 kilometers up. Um, and when they, they, at end of life, they push them out. Um, so they're in a, a kind of graveyard orbit even further out than that. Um, mm. And whereas low Earth orbit satellites will, will deorbit um, eventually and, and burn up in the atmosphere. So, you know, you, you're keeping the, keeping the skies clear. Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> that kind of makes a lot of sense, especially like you say, you don't want something hitting the space station at 27,000 miles an hour or something. But, no. uh, you know, I think there was another company that's working on like sort of almost a satellite Hoover type system, you know, where something goes up and then it sort of gets into orbit and crawls up on these derelict satellites and sort of sucks them up. That's very the James Bond, you know, you just go up to your <laughs> competitors and go, thank you, I'll have that. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we might be needing, needing proper space policing before long. But I, that means that at the end, there is literally somebody sat in Houston who's looking at a big screen who's got this all sort of under control knows exactly what's up there yeah kind of um you know almost air traffic control but just you know a uh, few hundred kilometers further further up <laughs> and um, yeah I mean, it's, it's a it's a constant thing and it's going to become more of a problem obviously um so yeah. the same thing that's going to happen in our skies with more and more vehicles in the air and more and more spacecraft and uh and bits of spacecraft so yeah there, there are a few companies working on space tugs um, uh, you know, and servicing robots and things like that um, to, to go up and um, you know, inject new fuel into an old satellite that, uh, that could give a few more years of service. 
So, and of course, yeah. yeah, that's the sweet spot for airspeeder because between the clogged up traffic on the ground and the clogged up skies and the clogged up orbit, <laughs> orbit you're going right in between us, six to eight meters. Beautiful. Last that's available right. gap. <laughs> to a true industry insider. I said, you know, there's only one place left and that's low, low altitude on Earth. So that's it. Um, no, Matt, tell us finally, what's the next date we're supposed to, to look out for? When, when, when's the next sort of big reveal? What are we, what are we looking at? Well, um, uh, you know, it's, it's later this month. I mean, the, the first glimpse at uh, what, um, uh, what airspeeder will look like and what, uh, uh, what um, yeah, what, what the, the sport will look like, what it looks like to, to race flying cars. Um, that's the, the next big thing, and that, that's coming up in, in the, ne- yeah, the next month. And then after that, it's, uh, I think the big milestones will be uh, all, the, all the work and we'll finally be able to show world what we've been doing and uh and the the journey to, to manned flight um uh later this year well so excited well to you and the team matt thank you so much for coming on the podcast today it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you wishing you and the team all the best and a lot of innovative power in in what's coming we're obviously very proud at iwc that you've selected us as, as your watch partner and we can't wait to see this all come together over the coming months and years if you want to find out more about airspeeder i'm sure you have your website is airspeeder.com matt i suppose that's exactly it and your instagram of course is airspeeder come and check it out you'll also find on iwc.com all of the details about the partnership and then hopefully uh, across the miles we're very much looking forward to connecting with with each other again face to face and hopefully i can't wait to see one of those airspeeders actually live in flight hopefully uh, later this year but in the meantime uh, best of luck to all of you thank you to the audience for listening thank you for joining us on uh, partners in time and speak to you all next time thanks a lot goodbye 